Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. What a fellowship, what a joy divine. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the
Friends, in this morning's reading from the Gospel according to John, we are introduced to a curious figure, this man Nicodemus. Nicodemus only appears in John's Gospel once in the story we will hear this morning, again at the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and once more after the crucifixion where he assists Joseph of Arimathea in preparing Christ's body for burial. As we shall hear this morning, Nicodemus wrestles with the teachings of Jesus. He is remembered by his curious mind and his willingness to negotiate the liminal space between certainty and doubt through conversation. Let us turn now as darkness falls and listen to the encounter between this curious man and Christ. John 3, verses 1 through 9, and verse 16 from the Common English Bible Translation. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. And Nicodemus asked, how? How is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how? How are these things possible? And Jesus answered, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
In 2011, while my family and I were still living in San Diego, an extraordinary event occurred late one afternoon. It was September 8th, 2011, at 3.38 p.m., that the largest power failure in California history left more than 7 million people without electricity for about 12 hours. It's been called the Great Blackout of 2011, when everything abruptly went down and offline all at once. Computers, internet, cell service, ATMs, gas pumps, credit card machines, air conditioners, microwaves, anything that was plugged in or hardwired. And for the first few hours, it was an uh, unwelcomed, uncomfortable inconvenience, but by nightfall, it became this major life disruption, as you can imagine. You quickly learn how difficult it really is to live without electricity. For starters, everything gets weirdly quiet. All that familiar white noise that comes from the hum of the refrigerator or the TV on low volume, it just grows strangely silent. And that's when it suddenly occurs to you that you might actually have to talk with all these human beings (laughs) that live in your house, which is really weird, isn't it? But by late evening, it was really the darkness that was most unsettling. You're walking through the house, feeling your way around with your hands, bumping into walls, fishing with your feet for the stairs, tripping over toys and furniture and piles of shoes and clothes, all because you never got around to replacing the batteries and your flashlights, right? And outside, the whole neighborhood grows utterly dark and quiet, even the ever present glow of the light pollution on the horizon has gone out. Without a candle or a flashlight, you can barely see beyond the tip of your nose. And it was a reminder that humans have such this enduring and uh, uh, lasting fear and discomfort of, of darkness. And we live our lives in the light. We live our lives uh, by sight, where At least in our minds, we think that everything is in control and there is no uncertainty and and we are invulnerable. But then the lights go out and that's a different story. What is it about the darkness that makes us so anxious and unsettled? Well, in our modern culture, darkness is mostly a symbol, has been made into a symbol of danger and menace, evil. Think of film and literature when all those characters that are hiding in the dark are often portrayed as malevolent forces. Dracula, Voldemort, Gollum, the Joker of Batman lore. The metaphor of darkness also tends to symbolize the imperiled, anguished inner being of a person. And so we might say things like, I'm totally in the dark on this issue. Or, I'm having really dark thoughts, or I'm going through a really dark time. And then even the ancient mystics spoke of the experience of spiritual struggle as, quote, the dark night of the soul. And so darkness, we're taught, is to be avoided, and those things that are hiding and lurking in the darkness are to be feared. But sometimes darkness symbolizes something radically different, not not menace or evil or danger, but 
a condition of transition, a place of searching, a passage of life, the experience of being in limbo, a liminal space between what once was and what is yet to be, that, that space in between. Darkness can that way represent a pregnant moment out of which something new could be born. And I think this most helpful view of darkness actually is found all over Scripture. In the beginning, says the book of Genesis, when nothing existed but darkness, God says, let there be light. And it's the darkness that helps give birth to light. The Hebrews, when they fled Pharaoh in Egypt, they did it under the cover of darkness. In the darkness, this ancient character named Jacob wrestles with an angel all night long. And when the sun finally comes up, he has a new identity and a new purpose and a new name. And the very nation of Israel is birthed out of darkness. You might remember the story of this carpenter in Nazareth who in his dreams in the night is visited by an angel who says, your fiance is pregnant and your whole life is going to get super, super interesting. (laughs) In the darkness, the magi from the east follow the star toward the savior. In the darkness, as it says in the gospel of John, quote, while it was still dark, the risen Christ walks out of a tomb It's out of darkness that new life and resurrection happens. So darkness is often a a biblical metaphor that symbolizes something like a a womb. It's an incubator of personal and spiritual transformation. And in that incubator are created these generative possibilities for rebirth and awakening to a new way of living. And it's this kind of darkness, I think, that serves as the backdrop to the story you just heard read from the Gospel of John about this man named Nicodemus who visits Jesus at night in the darkness. Nicodemus is this very prominent leader in the religious community. He's not just a Pharisee, but uh, he's a, a member of the Sanhedrin, which is something like the Jewish Supreme Court. He's a local celebrity with this impressive and enviable list of credentials, honorary degrees, doctorates, probably a full-page ad in the Jerusalem edition of the Who's Who, right? Nicodemus is a religious expert, and he's at a point in his life where he's at the top of his game. He's a living icon of Jewish faith and practice. But for as smart as he is, Nicodemus can't quite wrap his mind around this Jesus character. There's something about Jesus you can't figure out. Something that intrigues him, entices him. He's curious about this rabbi. Now at the time, many of the religious leaders of the day were really threatened by Jesus by his teachings, his miracles, his popularity. Everybody was talking about the new kid in town, saying Jesus was something special, maybe even the Messiah. And so the religious establishment, they were keeping a close eye on Jesus. 
In fact, some leaders, by the time we get to midway through the Gospel of John, are already plotting to bring Jesus down. But I don't think Nicodemus is one of them. He's not interested in trapping Jesus or setting him up. If that were his agenda, he wouldn't come at night. He'd come during the broad daylight when his whole religious entourage could come with him to expose him. Instead, Nicodemus comes at night. He has a lot to lose. His reputation, his status, his, 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 his image. He comes so that he won't be spotted. What is it that brings Nicodemus to Jesus under the cover of darkness? I think it's, it's a question that he brings to Jesus that every one of us in this room probably would like to ask Jesus. Are you the real thing? I mean, really? Straight up? Are you the one? Just tell us who you are. Because we've seen what you've done, the, the, the miraculous things that you've done, the signs and wonders, and nobody could do these things if they weren't of God. And in this way, there's a Nicodemus in all of us. He, like us, he wants to do the right thing and follow the right path and have all the right answers and know the right will of God in his life. And he does this by following all the rules and believing all the right things and observing all the right laws and, and, and having all the right words. And he's a pro at doing this. And it's this that makes his faith so much easier. There's no mystery there. There's confidence and certainty. Do this and you get that. Now, everything in his life is in place, just as it's supposed to be. But he comes to Jesus at night. Maybe because he senses that something is still missing. Maybe he's like that old greyhound dog on the racetrack that, that has finally caught the rabbit after all these years, only to discover that the rabbit isn't real. Nicodemus has been chasing a faith that's been all about apprehending certain truths about God and Scripture and, and keeping certain religious laws and practices and maintaining the public image as the Bible answer guy in the community. That's the kind of faith he can control, and you just check the box and you do this, and, and yet it never leads to any deeper kind of divine connection. What brings Nicodemus to Jesus under the cover of darkness. I think it's this inner conflict that we all have. The conflict between religious certainty and spiritual curiosity. Just when we think we, um, we, have, we have a handle on truth and God and reality, some unexpected spark appears or we hear a signal that we haven't heard before or an impulse that says, Reconsider, look, listen, search further, because maybe there's more to this after all than you don't know. And maybe you don't have all the right answers, or maybe all of your answers, they're wonderful, but you've been asking all the wrong questions. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that if he wants to, to know what's real, he must be born again. And Christians for the last 
300 years or so have, have really hijacked this phrase, born again, and they've turned it into a religious formula for how to get into heaven. And that formula looks something like this. Um, say this prayer, plus believe these doctrines, minus, insert all your favorite sins here, and you get eternal life in heaven. And look, I know many good people who have had these dramatic born-again conversions. I know many of them who at one point in their lives were living a really bad story. And they encountered Christ in some way, and they started living a much better story. And I have come to understand as a pastor over the years that for some people, that dramatic experience, the conversion, seems like the only way that God can ever get through to them. But can I just tell you that this is not what Jesus has in mind in this passage. He isn't talking about how to get into heaven when we die. He is talking about how to awaken to a whole new awareness of how God is working in his life and in the world, in this world, and how he can be a part of it by reorienting his life around God's will and purposes in the here and now. And Jesus invites Nicodemus to be born anew, which just really means to start over as a spiritual infant. And that includes unlearning some of your old tired answers and ending your quest for certainty and letting go of all that ego stuff that makes you so important in your community. And surrender that need to always be in the driver's seat. And Nicodemus says, but how can one be born all over again when you're already grown up? Nicodemus isn't being a literalist here. He knows what Jesus means. And what he's saying, Nicodemus, is, look, I've come all this way. I've worked so hard to get where I'm at and to believe what I believe, and now I'm too old to start over again. I hear this so often with people. I don't want to rethink what I've always believed. I don't want to be challenged, but Nicodemus' story is our story. And that's when Jesus offers Nicodemus the most oft-quoted and most often misunderstood, yet most beloved verses in all of Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. And many Christians assume that the word perish refers to hell. And eternal life refers to heaven. And believing in Jesus refers to some divine evacuation plan that will get us from this earth and this world into heaven. But look, I really think Jesus, as he looks at Nicodemus standing before him, sees this really good man who is already perishing who's desperately longing for new life. Because when you try so hard to be in control all the time, when you always are in the driver's seat and that's all you've ever known, and when you work so hard to have all the right answers and to keep up with appearances and to always be successful, that can be exhausting to the point 
of death. Doing God's work without God's abiding spirit is never, ever, ever God's perfect plan for your life. It leads to what we call burnout. That moment when something beautiful and vital in you just dies. And burnout happens when all this time we have been storing up in our spiritual safe all those accolades and achievements and answers and accomplishments only to go to that safe and open it one day and find that it's all turned to ash. Because what we had mistaken for our soul turned out all along just to be our ego. And then what do we do? Jesus says you have to be born of the Spirit. And that means to be led by the Spirit as the, a toddler is led by the hand. God's breath, it just like the wind that blows through the trees, it'll just take you where it wants to take you if you follow. And this is what Jesus really means when he says, all who believe in him would have eternal life. The Greek word here for believe is so much different from what we've made it to be in our modern language. The Greek word is pistuo, and it means to commit one's trust to. This is what really Jesus means when he speaks of believing in him, to commit one's trust to him. In the modern world, belief really means more like an assent or acceptance of something as true based on the facts, the evidence, certainty. And so many Christians think that, that believing in Christ is to, is, to, is to base one's life on facts. But I want you to think about believing a little differently today. But consider this scenario. Uh, you have a friend, and your friend climbs Pike, Pike's Peak. And at the summit, she snaps a photo or a selfie of herself, and then she sends that right to you. And she says, I just climbed Pike's Peak, and it's awesome. And you look at the photo and you say, I believe you. Uh, based on the photo, it looks awesome. You accept the proposition. Based on what you see, it, it seems pretty credible. Um, based on what you see, you can assent to that intellectually. Nothing is required of you to do that. It's just an idea. Based on the fact that you're, the photo proves that she's up there and, I mean, look at the view. It's pretty awesome. I believe you, you tell your friend. But next week she calls you and says, I'm going to hike up Pike's Peak again, and you're coming with me. We're going to climb that mountain together, and suddenly what you believe was possible for someone <laughs> is very personal now for you, and you're, you're asked to get personally involved. Yeah, but maybe you're not the mountain climby kind of person, and you tell your friend, I can't possibly climb Pike's Peak. I can't even climb out of bed every day. <laughs> and she says, I'm going to be with you the entire way. I won't leave your side. He said, I'm not really the outdoorsy type. And trust me, we're going to do this. It'll be awesome. But it's a 14er and I'm afraid of heights. You're, I mean, you're reaching for everything at this point. And don't worry, she says. You can depend on me. We're going to do this. You have to put your trust in me. And then the next day you're hiking 
up that mountain. And it's no longer, I believe you, it's, I believe in you. You're trusting your friend with your very life. And Jesus says, faith is a little like that. It's like a toddler being taken by the hand. Wide-eyed and curious, led by the Spirit, trusting her as she leads you. But the word pistuo also means this one other wonderful element of faith. It means also to set one's heart upon or to give your heart to. Have you ever given your heart to someone? Well, if you're in a relationship of some kind, you probably have. I mean, I hope you have. If you have, you know there's some element of risk to it, some uncertainty. Uh, I've done hundreds of weddings, literally hundreds of weddings, and I never once, uh, you know, when I've asked this question, um, do you take this woman to be your wife, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until you're parted by death? Never once has anybody ever said, maybe. Never. No one has ever said, look now, um, how poor are we talking about exactly, right? Because love and trust, it doesn't know maybe. There are no certainties in love. That's love and that's faith and that's what Nicodemus wants more than anything else to surrender all of his certitudes about God and life so he can really give his heart to God. And the question in that story from John is, will he move off of maybe and give his heart back to the source? That's his question, and that's ours. Will he emerge from that darkness of the womb, having found new life, How do we move off of maybe and emerge from the darkness, reborn? Three takeaways. Stop allowing your pride and your ego to get in the way of your trust of God. Because in the end, God doesn't care about your accolades, your achievements, your accomplishments, your piety, your credentials. None of that will get you up the mountain. So stay humble. Stop edging God out. Number two, be unapologetically and eternally curious about God. Let go of any answers that keep you from asking the difficult questions because certainty is idolatry and it must never be worshipped. Lean instead into the darkness because that darkness is the incubator of life. And finally, always go where the wind blows. The Spirit of God is like the wind. Trust it. Offer your hand to it. You never know where it's going to lead you. But when you're in the darkness, it is the only way that leads to life. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection, by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.